The St. Valentine's Day Massacre, one of the most notorious gangland slayings of the Prohibition era, where six gang members and a civilian in the wrong place at the wrong time were gunned down in cold blood. Today we're exploring the history of Prohibition in the United States and how the circumstances it created led to one of the most brutal unsolved crimes in American history. So pour yourself some whiskey and let's get weird. What's up, you beautiful weirdos? And welcome to the Weirdoverse. I'm your host, J.D. Ross, and you are tuned into Weirdwide, your favorite digital cult. Hope everyone's having a good week. Uh, Tis the season for love, after all. Uh, I'm pretty excited. I'm taking my wife, Trina, to see a stage production of Anastasia next week, so that should be a really good time. Uh, Just so you know, this is your official reminder to do something nice for that special someone, that special person in your life. Uh, This episode's going to be dropping uh, about a week before Valentine's Day, so you still have time. You still have time. I mean, you know, unless you decided to listen to this episode late, maybe you decided to procrastinate. Maybe listen to it a little bit after Valentine's Day, which, you know, at the end of the day is really your fault. Uh, You should have been paying more attention. So, you know, I'm not going to be blamed for you being negligent. Uh, It isn't my job to remind you to be nice to the person you love. I just did that as a courtesy because I care about my fans. Okay? That's the kind of show that you're tuned into. One that cares. But you really need to stop blaming me for your fuck up here because, you know, when you've got one finger pointed at your favorite digital cult leader, don't forget, you still got four little piggies pointed right back at you, don't you? But you know what? I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you what you do so that this doesn't happen again. This doesn't happen next time I decide to remind you of something. You're going to want to go to the show's official website, www.weirdwide.com, and you're going to sign up for the mailing list. That way you get new episodes sent to you the moment they drop. See what I did there? If you do prefer to just keep it weird on the YouTube, make sure to hit that subscribe button. Click that little bell so you can get updates as new episodes are loaded up. We're getting weird here on Wednesday, so join me for that. Now, before we dive into today's topic, let's check in with Weird Wide's mascot, everyone's favorite disembodied alien, Larry. Larry, what do you think about Valentine's Day? I don't know, man. I never really bought into the whole Valentine's Day thing. Aw, what's the matter? You don't have a little alien sweetheart on your home planet? I didn't say that. I actually have a pretty epic dating life. I just don't see myself with one creature. This bird you can't chain, you know? Did you just rip off Skinner? Maybe Skinner ripped me off. All right, enough nonsense. Enough love. Let's get to what you came here for. Old-timey, violent gangland murder. So the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was a brutal gangland mass murder that took place in Chicago on February 14th, 1929. Valentine's Day. Bummer. In total, seven men were killed in cold blood that day at a garage on North Clark Street in Chicago's North End. All unarmed, the group was made up of six members affiliated with the Northside gang run by George Bugs Moran, as well as an optometrist who happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. But more on that later. They were murdered by four assailants disguised as police officers. All are still unknown to this day. Some sources say there were two guys dressed as cops and two guys in plain clothes. Some sources say there were four guys dressed as cops. So I'm not really totally 100% sure. And I wasn't fucking there. So speaking on the cops thing, I don't know if there's any significance to it, but it makes me wonder if the part in the untouchables is a reference to the mass murder. You know, the part where Frank Nitty is dressed up as a cop and he kills the two guys in the elevator and writes touchable on the, on the, in blood on the elevator wall. 
It feels like that might have been a little bit of a, a little bit of a nod to the thing. Now, to understand the way the world is running at this point in history, we actually have to go a little bit further back to what was arguably one of the biggest contributing factors for the massive prevalence of organized crime activity in the United States at the time, prohibition. Now, prohibition was an extraordinarily stupidly conceived idea uh, where alcohol was completely outlawed. Now, I had always thought the U.S. was the only uh, country that had ever attempted alcohol prohibition. It, it turns out, uh, to my surprise, lots of countries have tried it. Big shocker, it doesn't usually work out. Uh, China, Iceland, Russia, Sweden, Norway, Canada, and more have all tried it in one way, shape, or form. Like I said, it usually doesn't work out, and most countries repeal it pretty soon after they institute it. Prohibition for the U.S. was adopted officially in 1919 with the, with the passage of the 18th Amendment, a.k.a. the Volstead Act. The Volstead Act banned the manufacture, transport, and sale nationwide of all intoxicating liquors. Uh, defined an intoxicating liquor as anything that contained more than one half of 1% alcohol. Now, even though the law was officially ratified in 1919, it had origins that go back almost a century when a new wave of religious revivalism began sweeping the country with all these calls for abstaining from the <laughs> because of Jesus. Didn't Jesus turn water into wine? Like, wasn't that one of his things? Like, didn't Jesus like kind of actually promote alcohol a little bit? Now, I do got to give the religious wackadoodles a little bit of credit here in this particular case because they weren't completely bad with everything with everything they were going for because they did actually have some extreme causes they weren't fighting for. One of the big ones was actually slavery. So they did at least have some noble ideas. Uh, in 1838, Massachusetts passed a uh, temperance law limiting the quantity of spirits that you could buy, but it was repealed two years later. Maine was one of the first countries to pass a statewide prohibition law and passed that in 1846, with an even stricter one a few years later in 1851, which was then used as a model for other states to follow. By the time we got to the 20th century, it was actually a common fixture in most cities to have some very active temperance societies, such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union, active in their cities. Think like the stereotypical angry school mom types that you see in movies. Like, and there, there's always a bunch of like old Christian ladies that hang out outside a bar yelling at everybody to put the drink down and come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Stop with the devil's drink. A lot of the temperance movements actually were led by women specifically because society it was societally it was considered more of a man's thing to drink. Uh, and it was generally seen by the wives as just something uh, evil that tore the families that tore families apart. Now I'm like, okay. On one hand, I kind of get it. Like alcoholism is a massive issue. Uh, at this point, uh, there wasn't actually really any cultural concept of, hey, brah, maybe. Maybe you're drinking just a little bit too much. Like maybe you're enjoying the sauce a little beyond enjoyment. Maybe it's becoming a problem. They didn't really have shit like that. That wasn't in the discussion. Like Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't even established until 1935, which was two years after Prohibition had ended. So like, yeah, shit was probably a little, a little bit rough for dudes who had them a liking for the drink. But at the same time, the idea that seems to be really popular, even to this day, of just yelling at people and threatening them with Jesus, it never has and it never will work. Modern Christians push this idea of abstinence culture on kids. Like they start pretending like sex isn't some natural thing and they start banning sex ed in school. Maybe contraception gets more difficult to get. And the kids just you tell the kids just wait till marriage. It always fails. The states that take these kinds of approach always have higher rates of teen pregnancy. STDs and everything in between. 
You can't just put a fucking purity ring on your kid and think that's going to be what stands between raging hormones when they get into their teen years and they start needing to fuck. Works the same with prohibition. Hell, man, I live in a small town and there's like these weird local laws where there's like only so many liquor licenses that are allowed to exist. And like these religious groups will buy up as many as they can just to keep like businesses from having them. So like not every place around here sells alcohol. Cause they're, they're fucking expensive. Cause like, you know, you add supply and demand factors to it. Like now all of a sudden these are a hot commodity, you know, any business that gets them is going to have to spend buku bucks to get that shit. It's fucking insane. It's antiquated and it's archaic and I don't get it. I don't understand. It's not going to stop people from drinking. Doesn't make sense to me. In 1906, the heat on the war against alcohol was turned up by a group called the anti saloon league. Uh, this was fueled by cultural reaction to urban growth, a.k.a. people who are terrified of progress, as well as a new rise in evangelical Protestantism. So again, religious fanatics thinking they can just shout a problem out of existence. Now, when the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, President Woodrow Wilson instituted what was supposed to be a temporary wartime prohibition in an effort to conserve grain that was used for producing food instead of being used to produce liquor. To me, this one isn't even completely unreasonable as far as most of this goes. The rationale of we have to, we have a war going on that we're all involved in, world war. Uh, we need to use our resources more efficiently. Let's not make booze right now. Let's make food because shit's getting rough and the fucking world supply chain is fucked. That makes sense to me. Unfortunately, this would end up being a precursor to a permanent ban. As Congress submitted the 18th Amendment that same year, and even though there's a seven-year limit written into the bill, this was actually overridden by a majority vote in Congress, which ultimately sped up the process and would lead to the national liquor ban in 1919, called the Volstead Act because it was spearheaded by Representative Andrew Volstead of Minnesota. Uh, he was the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. As I said, it was a law almost 100 years in the making. It was nicknamed... The Noble Experiment, which doesn't that kind of piss you off? Like, doesn't that kind of just really chap your ass a little bit? Like, Land of the Free is supposed to be, like, one of our big things. That's, like, one of the selling points of the whole situation. And here's these fucks in Washington making this fucking moral decision for the entire country, taking away a tangible freedom and literally just patting themselves on the back and kissing each other's asses over it. Look what we're doing. We're doing a noble experiment good job woodrow good job good job gentlemen 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 yeah doesn't that just piss you off a little bit now what's even more infuriating is the wealthier folk were able to stockpile liquor for their own personal use before the law went into effect liberty for me but not for thee even president woodrow wilson had his own private stash now, because the process was rushed they didn't really seem like they had any kind of real plan in place for it Prohibition was originally enforced by the IRS, of all things, before an official department could be created through the Justice Department called the Bureau of Prohibition. But completely prohibiting something does not eliminate the desire for it. It could be argued that prohibition was what really led to the early 20th century's rise in organized crime. Bootlegging operations began almost immediately, and within the first six months of Prohibition, the federal government opened 7,291 cases related to the Volstead Act. The next year, that number grew to 29,114, and would continue to grow year after year until Prohibition was eventually repealed. Crime absolutely increased with the advent of Prohibition. 
In one study of more than 30 major U.S. cities during the Prohibition years 1920 and 1921, the overall number of crimes increased by 24%. Additionally, theft and burglaries increased 9%, homicides by 13%, assault and battery rose by 13%, drug addiction over 45%, and police department costs rose by 11.4%. Now, with alcohol being taken away, a new commodity suddenly becomes very much in demand. And anytime an illicit substance is in demand, organized crime groups will always step in and provide said substance. This is why the later so-called war on drugs was a war that was impossible to win. Anytime you tell humans they can't have something, they will find a way to go out and get it. I mean, weed, cocaine, heroin, it's all illegal. But it's all accessible because there's someone filling that need. But that's a completely different topic. Now, around this time, mafia groups in the U.S. were already active uh, with a lot of immigration from Italy. The element of Locosa Nostra followed with it. Prior to Prohibition, these mafia groups uh, had mostly dealt in prostitution, gambling, and sometimes protection rackets and things like that. But now they had a cash cow that would give them a new massive source of revenue. And with that, power oh look all right looks like we got a caller calling weird wide you are on the air uh jd it's a pleasure to make your acquaintance my name is tony cannoli oh okay cool nice to meet okay, that's enough of that now unfortunately at the moment jd we have a little bit of business that we need to discuss business yeah so it seems that your little friend from out of town larry it seems like he owes me some money for a gambling debt. And I shouldn't have to tell you that I'm not one that's known for his patience. Oh, so Larry owes... Tell your little friend from out of town that I want my money. And if I don't get it, I can assure you that very unpleasant reactions will follow. I'm, I'm just a little curious, Tony. I mean, like, what kind of unpleasant reactions are we talking about here? Oh, JD, it's so very unpleasant. Let me assure you, if Larry doesn't give me my money, I'm going to turn him in the mush. Or maybe like a cream. Like the, the cream of a cannoli. A sweet, a silky, smooth, delicious cream of cannoli. All wrapped up in a flaky fried pastry shell. Mmm. And topped with powdered sugar. Maybe a couple chocolate chips for, for an extra flair. Mmm, that sounds delicious. You tell your friend from out of town. Better give me my money. Well, that was weird. So Larry's out here pissing everybody off. Okay, back to it. Now let's meet some of the players in the ensuing power struggle that would lead to that fateful day in Chicago. Now, while it is not confirmed that he was the one behind the murder, it is widely assumed that the hit was ordered by one of the most notorious mobsters in American history, Al Capone. Alphonse Gabriel Capone was born in New York City on January 17th, 1899. He was the son of Italian immigrants Gabriel and Teresa Capone, who came to the U.S. in 1893. Uh, Gabriel was a barber and Teresa was a seamstress. They seemed to be uh, normal, everyday, working Joe types. Now, aside from Al, the Capones had eight other children. Uh, This is a fun fact I found here is uh, his brother Vincenzo actually went a completely opposite direction from his younger brother. So he eventually changed his name to Richard Hart and was actually a prohibition agent. And you think your family reunions are awkward. Two of Al's other brothers, Frank and Ralph, worked alongside Al in his criminal empire. 
Capone did show some promise in school, but he had a lot of trouble following the strict rules of his Catholic school. Uh, His school days came to an abrupt end at the age of 14 when he was expelled for hitting one of his teachers in the face. I feel like, honestly, though, haven't we all had a teacher at one point or another that just like what you wouldn't give to just. A lot of us thought about it, but few of us did it. Just saying not I'm not over here trying to like take up for Al Capone, but I feel like. We've all been there. We can all we we can all relate to this particular impulse. Now, initially, after being expelled from school, Capone worked with a lot of small time gangs such as the Junior 40 Thieves and the Bowery Boys before eventually joining a much more powerful New York Street gang called the Five Points Gang. Uh, Now, one day working the door at a bar, he was apparently uh, he apparently insulted a woman whose brother then attacked him and slashed him with a knife three times leading to a nickname that would stick with Capone for the rest of his life, Scarface, which he absolutely despised. It's kind of crazy the real world, uh, it's kind of crazy there was actually a real world Scarface. Like, that's pretty wild. Except instead of cocaine, it was whiskey. In 1919, Capone made a move from New York to Chicago at the invitation of his mentor, another very prominent mob figure, Johnny Torrio. Torrio kind of became a mentor to Capone, and the two would eventually form together what is now known as the Chicago Outfit, which is like Chicago's main mafia syndicate. Like I said, Torrio is a very interesting figure in mob history. Along with forming the Chicago Outfit, he was also one of the architects of the commission, which was what got all the mafia families working together. So like when you hear about like the commission and mob movies and shit like that, it's like the cooperation of the mob syndicates in every major city working together, even across the world, like like in Italy and like the old country and shit like that. Torrio was even at one point an advisor to Lucky Luciano, who was another key figure in forming the commission. So we're talking big mafia names here. Now, Capone had made a name for himself bootlegging in Chicago and formed a lot of connections with Canadian liquor distributors. In February 1925, an assassination attempt was made on Torrio. He survived, and after he recovered, handed full control over to Capone. He was only 26 at the time. See, now, now this is one of those moments where we can really look at this and kind of think like, man, what have we done? Like, here's Al Capone at 26 years old, and he's running the Chicago outfit. Like, it makes me feel like a little bit of a loser, I'm not going to lie. His time as boss of the outfit was a bloody one, uh, with many underworld figures fighting for control over the lucrative bootlegging business. One major well-known feud was with a gangster named Joe Aiello, whose rivalry seemed to become a lot more personal with Capone uh, once Capone became the head of the Union Siciliana, which was a Sicilian-American benevolent society that had all been taken over by mafia influence. Apparently, Aiello really fucking wanted that position, and when Capone got it over him, Aiello began a series of assassination attempts, uh, one of which uh, is one that, like, this this is another reason that I can't be in the mafia. Like, I couldn't do shit. Aside from, like, honestly not having the balls to just, like, go out and fucking murder people and steal shit and just be a criminal is, like, the way they got him is how they would probably get me, and pretty easily, too. So Aiello goes to the chef, of one of Capone's favorite restaurants and offers him money to put cyanide in Capone's soup. Reports vary, but it, uh, it was said that Aiello or offered somewhere, offered the chef somewhere between 10,000 and 35,000. But the chef was loyal to Capone and he told Capone all about it. 
So Al responded by having his men shoot up a bakery that Aiello owned called Aiello Brother called the Aiello Brothers Bakery. They shot over 200 rounds into the store, wounding Joe's brother Antonio. Uh, the feud was eventually won by Capone. Now another major feud, which eventually culminated with the St. Valentine's Day massacre, was one with a bootlegger named George Bugs Moran. Bugs, along with another gangster named Jaime Weiss, ran a syndicate called the Northside Gang. Weiss was actually known in his time as the only man that Al Capone feared. Now, along with being business rivals, Bugs actively and very publicly hated Al Capone for what I think is one of the silliest reasons that I've ever heard in this particular world. So because Capone dealt in many criminal enterprises, liquor being the most lucrative, but he dealt in other stuff, gambling, anything that could make money in the underworld, gambling, loan sharking, all that shit. But he dealt in prostitution, and that's where Bugs Moran drew the fucking line. See, Moran was a strict Catholic, and he felt that prostitution was just too much. He felt as a Catholic that prostitution was disgusting, and he hated Capone for profiting from it. Like the absolute mind fucks that religion can make you do. Like you're totally cool with running a criminal empire. You're totally cool with like running a group, an organization that definitely murders its rivals. Like you'll see in a minute here, he like literally attempts to have people like that are in his way murdered. But hookers are where you draw the line on what's good and bad. Make it make sense, Bugs. Make it make sense. Like I said, several attempts were made on Torio and Capone's lives by Weiss and Moran. At one point, a hit squad targeted Capone at his headquarters at the Hawthorne Inn in Cicero, Illinois. Over a thousand rounds were shot into the hotel trying to take Capone out. Capone survived. And in retaliation, Capone's men murdered Jaime Weiss. Frank Nitti, who was Capone's right-hand man and one of his most dangerous enforcers, is credited with masterminding the hit on Weiss. In response to the hit on Weiss, Bugs Moran attempted to murder a member of Capone's gang. But from what I can tell, he failed. See, this also, to me, kind of shows the difference between Capone and Bugs Moran. Capone was playing chess while Moran was playing checkers. Moran comes off to me as very impulsive, and he seemed like he let his anger get the best of him. Like, Capone, like, he, he wasn't, like, from what I can tell, he wasn't even going for a high-value target. I couldn't even find the name of the guy that he had targeted. He was just trying to hit somebody in Capone's crew instead of trying to think of a way to actually deal with a real problem from a mafia sense. Like, the smart thing to do would have been to try to hit Nitty or Capone or somebody in the muscle or the administration end of the, of the organization, but he didn't. Capone had had enough, and he set into motion a plan that would eliminate Bugs Moran for good. So while Capone was on vacation in Florida, good plausible deniability, Moran was offered a truckload of whiskey at a bargain price. He had it delivered to the garage on North Clark Street at 10.30 a.m. on February 14, 1929. It is believed that Capone thought that Moran would have been there himself, but luckily for Bugs, he was not. Six of the seven men who were there at the garage that day did work for Moran's Northside gang, including two contract killers, Frank and Pete Gusenberg, both of whom had participated in the assassination attempt at the Hawthorne Inn. The seventh unlucky son of a bitch, who is the epitome of wrong place, wrong time, was a German optometrist named Reinhard Schwimmer. Now, Schwimmer from what I can tell, was not a criminal at all, didn't even have a criminal record. But for whatever reason, he enjoyed hanging out with criminals. 
Like, dude was an eye doctor. This was like a legitimate eye doctor. And like, I don't know. It just kind of comes off as like extraordinarily bad judgment. I'm not trying to victim blame here, but like, you're a fucking eye doctor. Like, this was a Thursday. I looked it up. This was a Thursday at 1030 in the morning. Don't tell me you didn't have some eye doctor shit to be doing. If he'd have just gone to work that day, he wouldn't have been murdered. But alas, he did not. This is a good thing to keep in mind, weirdos. If you're considering calling out of work to go hang out with a bunch of criminals, just go to work. If you're taking a day off for yourself, take a day off for yourself. You deserve it. You do deserve a day off. But, like, don't go hang out with drug dealers. Like, just don't. Just just, just go. Just watch a movie at home. It's fucking cold as shit right now. Well, when I'm recording this, I don't know what it's going to be, you know, by the time this drops. But, like, if you need, if you need like, a mental health day, by all means, stay home. Enjoy your day. Enjoy yourself. But don't go hang out with criminals. You're going to get killed in a garage. It's not going to it's not going to end well. With the hit squad posing as police officers, the seven men were made to line up against one of the walls in the garage, at which point two of the cops began firing into the unarmed men with Tommy guns, killing all seven. Now, Frank Gusenberg was the only one that didn't immediately die. But when the cops arrived, uh, he maintained the criminal code of silence and refused to tell them who had committed the crime. Honestly. That's kind of badass. Like, this is a guy that, like, this is a guy that, like, he's in the life, right? This is a guy that, like, kills people, fucking robs people, everything. Like, he, he, but he also, like, has a keen awareness that, like, any moment the shoe could drop, I could be on the other end of this Tommy gun. And that day he was, and he just kind of accepted it. And he literally, you know, even, even to get revenge on the guys that got him, he said nothing. There's something to that. It's kind of badass. Not going to lie. Moran, on the other hand, was infuriated and began publicly blaming Capone for the murders, which technically is in violation of the criminal code of silence. See what I mean? Like this, this guy, he's got no composure. Bugs Moran had no composure. He had no he, he had no like chill. You know what I mean? Bugs Moran, weakened by the loss of so many gang members, was eventually driven out of Chicago, but he maintained his criminal ways. Uh, he went back to more petty crimes such as mail fraud and small time robbery, uh, was eventually convicted of attempting to cash 62,000 in hot checks uh, in prison. Uh, more evidence came up from previous robberies and he was convicted of uh, even more crimes. And he eventually died at Leavenworth Federal Prison at the age of 63. Capone, of course, solidified his power after the massacre. However, with most of the fingers unofficially pointing at him for the murders, he did lose a lot of the local popularity that he had cultivated because he was a very popular dude. See, the thing about Capone is, yes, he was a stone cold gangster, but I'm going to compare him a little bit to like a Julius Caesar who understands the value of having the public support. So he was very outwardly charitable, like he was earning a lot of money. He was also giving a lot of money away would help a lot of local people. You know, it's like one of those things where it's like, you know, it's, you're down on your luck. Capone will help, you know, Al Capone. If you're a civilian, yeah, you might get caught in the crossfire of shit, but like, it's like, it's a lot like the Godfather, you know, it's like that. So, so he had a lot of public love and a lot of public support, but the massacre definitely took a lot of that away. And at that point, the federal government also began very actively trying to take him down. In October 1931, he was convicted of tax evasion, and his reign as one of the most notorious mobsters in history came to an end. Now, like I said, it is widely believed 
that Capone was the mastermind behind the massacre, but no one really knows for sure. There is some evidence that members of the Chicago police were involved themselves, as they were not above getting involved in the liquor trade, or it could have just been some small-time gangsters who were trying to make a name for themselves and got carried away. We never will truly know. As far as prohibition goes, it was eventually recognized for the horrible idea that it was and officially abolished in 1933. Uh, we seem to have learned absolutely nothing from history as other forms of prohibition have been and still are in place, with the war on drugs being particularly destructive to the many caught in its wake. But that is another episode for another day. Well, thanks for getting weird with me. Uh, make sure to have a make sure to have a nice Valentine's Day for real. Do something special for the one you love. Ha, make, make, make make do something nice. Do something do something that's gonna make their heart flutter. Don't forget to go on the website. Sign up for the sign up for the mailing list. You get new episodes sent directly to your email. You don't even have to seek them out. They show up right in your right in your email for you, nice and convenient. If you want to shoot me an email, you got any thoughts on this episode or any other episodes, really, you can email me at weirdwidepodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to find me on Instagram and TikTok at Weirdo. You can hit me up in the DMs there, too. If you're listening on audio only, make sure if you like what you're hearing and you feel so compelled to leave a review on Apple. It really helps out the show. And it's really appreciated. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to subscribe. Make sure to comment below. Let me know what you think. Let me know any other ideas you want to hear for other episodes. Let's get weird. And don't forget to tell your friends about the show. We need more people drinking this Kool-Aid. We need more people drinking the weird in here. Bring the people to this cult. And we will build it together. I love you all. Make sure to join me next week for another installment of Strangeness. And until then, keep it weird. Keep it weird.